Welcome to the final episode of the MMA Lockcast for 2023. I'm your host, Manpreet, aka MMA Lock of the Night, your boy on social media at MMA LOTN, and the architect behind the MMA Fight Archive, making sure you leave no stone unturned when you do your researching for these upcoming MMA events. We got over 2,700 fighter profiles on there right now, but not just for the UFC, for Bellator, for PFL, for ACA. Aries FC, Cage Warriors, CFFC, LFA, KSW, A1 Combat, and starting in 2024, we'll be adding a handful of new promotions. I will be polling the current sub subscribers to see which promotions they'd like to see added. So this will definitely become the one-stop shop for the researching requirements that are needed for cappers, analysts, predictors, commentators, coaches and fighters and make sure you check it out yourself seven day free trial available link for that in the description below before you even have to shell out a dime you can check it out for free for an entire week and see why the buzz is what it is about it because the mma fight archive is a great resource i use it every single week as well as updating it but using it for my own research as well that's why i know so much about all of the fighters that i break down for you guys on a weekly basis once again, check out the MMA Fight Archive 7-day free trial available for you. Link for that in the description below. All right, it is the final event of 2023 and the UFC ends the calendar year with a banger of a card. We got UFC 296 going down this weekend. It is a double headliner in terms of titles that we have on the line in the coming event we got the flyweights on tap which is actually a rematch between now champion alexandre pantoja and challenger one of the most entertaining flyweights on the roster mr raw dog brandon roy val i was alive for their first matchup back in august of 2021 in the apex the match lived up to its hype but now they get five rounds to do the damn thing i don't know if they'll need it but it should still be a fun fight regardless and then in the main event uh, a big time matchup here in the welterweight division where we got leon edwards looking for his second title defense as the welterweight champion he puts his title on the line against uh notorious bad guy Mr. Kobe Covington, uh, who hasn't competed since March of 2022, but the fanfare and eyeballs and just publicity that he brings to the table whenever he steps foot inside the cage, I guess that's why he's getting this title shot over guys like Bilal Muhammad, who probably deserve that shot instead. Obviously, 2023 has been a long year for your boy, so I really appreciate everybody that's been supporting, whether it's from the uh, podcast to the Patreon to the Fight Archive to following on Twitter, all of that good stuff. Um, it's been a it's been a tremendous year. It's it's been a big year of growth, and I'm uh, very thankful for all the friends and family that helped me get through it. Um, but I think the the most important people that I really wanted to shout out uh, in regards to that was was you guys, the the viewers, the the people that come in and watch on a weekly basis that allow me to still achieve the numbers that I've had before and even start surpassing those numbers, um, I really appreciate it. You know, you guys value what I have to say in regards to this, these matchups. You guys trust that I actually go out there and research these fight, uh, fights, every single fighter on these upcoming cards as deeply as I can and give you my best predictions and uh, best analysis that I possibly can. And uh, I believe that's why you guys continue to come back on a weekly basis, whether you're looking to follow or fade i i truly appreciate every single one of you guys um all the interactions in the comment section all of that stuff you guys have been absolutely amazing um 
it's been helpful mentally as well, uh, seeing the the love and and support that's very much still out there and continues to grow on a monthly basis. So um, a weekly basis, I should even say. So uh, you know, shout out to you guys. Um, if it wasn't for you guys, I'd I don't know if I'd still be around in the space. You know, I I think it very much depended on whether there was still a want for me in the space, and there is, and I'm truly thankful for that. So um. Shout out to you guys. This holiday season, as you guys, I'm, I'm kind of festive with the turtleneck and all that stuff. Um, you know, I just wanted to 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 um, say that. You know, I'm probably going to do a, a betting recap uh, of the year as well uh, video next week once everything is said and done. Uh, just to talk about the, the changes I've made in regards to my approach to capping and all of that and how it's been successful for me this year um obviously could be doing better but still very much in the positive better than i've done uh, in recent years and i think there's a big reasoning for that as well which i'll talk about in the betting recap um again look for that maybe next week or the week after that but i'll just quickly go over the year uh from a, a track standpoint and just my my thought process behind all that but again in regards to everything that went down appreciate everybody that's still around appreciate everybody that still supports me whether it's privately or publicly um you know it means a lot all right let's get into the uh, recap for last week um last week we had ufc vegas 83 the lock of the night play does not come through for your boy as Mel Quazayel Costa had a pedestrian first round where he won it on all three judges scorecards by pushing Steve Garcia up against the fence but when Garcia finally got the space he needed in the second round he continues to go out there pulling off upsets and putting guys away with the big knockout power that he has I really thought Costa would be able to maintain his range or at least get this fight to the ground where he can stay safe enough and away from the power of Garcia Garcia's fade will continue moving forward as i think he's very reliant on that finish but maybe mel quasiel costa was not the guy to have done it with so uh, we did have a w on the pfl uh, as kershed kakarov came through for us so we go one and one on lock of the night predictions this past weekend where it is now sitting at 98 and 34 on the year for a 74 percent hit rate still very much in the green uh and now talking about the dog of the night um prediction for last week we went 2-0 on pfl it's escaping my mind oh actually it was a uh, jakob kasuba who comes through after having a tough first round comes through in the second round for us i think he was plus 105 uh, as our dog play there and then talita Allencar. She may have gotten a bit of gift on the decision there, but I'm very happy to take that at plus 140 or plus 145, I think I got her at, which now increases our record for the dog of the night on the year to 58 and 72 for a 45% hit rate. I believe we're roughly around the 9 to 10% ROI number as well on units profited uh, and return on investment. Um, so very happy with that as well. Uh, yeah, so solid uh, weekend other than the lock of the night play not hitting for the UFC. Uh, I also just want to say out there, um, I'm looking for new content to add to the channel. Uh, one of the things that I've kind of been tinkering with is adding a recap or at least a media recap slash reaction video after every UFC event. Uh, you know, it would come out roughly right after the event has concluded or at least the next afternoon. Uh, curious to hear if there's any other uh, types of content that you guys would like to hear from your boy. Um, you know, I used to do the weigh-in stuff. I'm not, I'm not as much of a believer in that. You know, I think a lot of people just over-exaggerate um, 
weigh-ins and all that stuff. Obviously, there's certain uh, ones, but it's very rare that there is a, an actual uh, weigh-in that that concerns me, that makes me want to switch a pick or anything like that. I think that stuff is very much overvalued to just throw away an entire uh, fighter's resume based on they look like a little bit drawn out at the scales. Like, I, I just don't... I don't read into that too much, and I think it's a waste of time, personally speaking. But um, yeah, curious to hear what other content uh, you guys would like. You know, I'd, I'd do the top three lock of the night candidates, top three dog of the night candidates, uh, a free parlay for you guys, as well as three best prop bets. I think I got everything covered except a post-event recap. So if that's something that interests you, please let me know in the comment section below. Or if there's something else that you guys would like to see, let me know. And I'd be happy to try to fill that void for you guys in 2024. Uh, and also a reminder, no more Bellator. So I won't be doing Bellator predictions anymore. But, uh, you know, I'll likely add PFL into the fold in 2024 rather than just having it as, uh, you know, written breakdowns on the Patreon page. I might start doing uh, full breakdown cards for those um on the regular for every PFL event in 2024. Uh, but yeah, let me know what you guys would like to see. All right. Uh, last plug here real quick is going to be the uh, Godzilla win folks uh, Godzilla wins.com make sure you guys check them out I drop a, a two weekly um, articles for them for every UFC event on Wednesdays it's the main event breakdown and then on Thursdays it's the three best money line spots so if you're looking for more content from your boy that is where to check it out obviously the Patreon page as well where I do written breakdowns for every single matchup pretty in-depth giving you a best bet best prediction best prop and best hedge for every single matchup and then it's not just for the ufc but the regional shows that i cover as well uh lfa cage warriors um obviously pfl uh bellator is all on there as well check the patreon page for the lock of the night patreon page in the description below all right we got 14 fights to get through for this card. I know I went a little bit long for the intro. It's the last show of the year. I wanted to just make sure I ticked off a couple of things off the list there. Uh, but we, like I said, 14 fights on this card. So let's get right down to it. First fight of the night going down in the welterweight division where we got Randy Brown coming in as a minus 245 favorite. He goes up against the near 40-year-old Muslim Salikov who comes in at plus 210. We'll start off on the Randy Brown side who's coming off of a rebound victory against Wellington Terman last time around after he had his four-fight winning streak snapped by Jack Della Maddalena earlier this year. But he used a conservative approach against Wellington Terman using his clinch in certain aspects but also his ability to maintain that distance and uses distance striking to touch up Terman from uh, from range uh, for the first two rounds. Uh, he kind of let this third round go, uh, uh, kind of let it go with Terman, uh, being able to push him up against the cage, dictate the pace of that round. But unfortunately for Terman, it was too late for him, uh, and Terman had, or sorry, Brown had already banked the first two rounds and was able to get the judge's decision. At 33 years old, I think we're starting to see the ceiling of Randy Brown. I don't think he'll be a guy that's going to find himself in the top five of the division or even top eight, but he's still going to be a tough out for a lot of opponents. At his six foot three and 78 inch reach frame that he has at welterweight, it's going to get hard for opponents to get to him and touch him. Uh, you know, Jack obviously very much pushed the pressure, pushed the pace, and then eventually got that club and sub finish. But most guys find it difficult to crash that pocket against Brown because he does such a great job with his footwork and his kicks to keep his opponents at bay and then follow up with straight shots down the pipe, hurting them from distance and more often not going to a decision winning his fights. His opponent this weekend, Muslim Salikov, is now 1-2 over his last three fights. He had a solid run before his knockout loss to Jingliang Li uh, last year. 
but then he bounced back with that win over Andre Fialio and then fell short to Nicholas Dalby earlier this year. I think that shows what his ceiling and the fact that he probably has reached his peak in the UFC at this point. He's a guy that likes to rely on his kung fu style of striking with a lot of spinning kicks and some good power that he brings to the table. And he's also showed off some of his grappling chops in his last couple of fights, but it's shown that he doesn't really have the best control when he gets his opponents to the ground and then when he is the one being taken down he kind of struggles in terms of getting back to his feet he has a decent cardio game as well but i think he's coming uh up short in some of these fights because he's starting to get closer to that 40 year old range uh he's not able to push as much as these younger guys and the fact that he's at a speed advantage or speed disadvantage in a lot of his fights leaves him susceptible to getting touched up by his opponents from distance and i think that's going to be the ultimate deciding factor here as Randy Brown should be able to stay away from um, Salakov's big shots. You're talking about a four-inch height advantage and an eight-inch, uh, sorry, four-inch, yeah, four-inch height advantage and eight-inch reach advantage for Randy Brown here. He should be able to touch up Salakov from distance using his one-twos down the middle, using his footwork to stay out of danger, and I think that his takedown defense is good enough should Salikov look to get this fight to the ground. Look for knees up the middle from Randy Brown to hurt Muslim Salikov, but I think for the most part, we'll see Randy Brown play this fight safe touch him up from distance, and pick up a decision victory. Moving over to the heavyweight division, we got a very intriguing matchup here between two almost undefeated fighters. You got Martin Budai currently riding in 11-fight winning streak, I believe it is, or 12. Uh, obviously undefeated in the UFC now as well with uh, four straight victories. Uh, he's going up against Shamil Gadziev, uh, who just earned his contract through the contender series last year. You got Budai coming in at minus 140 and Gatsiev coming in at plus 120. Now, Budai is one of my favorite heavyweight prospects that we have on the roster. This guy is a very tough to deal with considering the pace and pressure that he normally puts on his opponents. Usually we see him go out there and look to break his opponents by roughing them up against the cage or at least staying in their face staying in the grill, putting punches together, and just keeping up uh, you know, the same pace from minute one to minute 15. But something was in the air the night that he faced off against Josh Parisian last time around as he really pushed the pace from the jump, hurting Parisian numerous times, and eventually reversing a takedown attempt from Parisian, ending up in top position and locking up a Kimura where he was able to get the tap and get his first first round victory inside the UFC cage this guy's very tough to deal with his durability is very good and a part of that has to do with the high tight guard that he likes to use with his striking that allows him to push forward and evade the majority uh, of the brunt of the shots from his opponents and that allows him to kind of dictate the pace of this fight or most fights staying in his opponent's face keeping them on their back foot so that he can either push them up against the cage and wear on them using his big forehead to just brush into the chin of his opponents pushing them up against the cage and then rip into the body with some body shots or chipping away with some knees but it's just a matter of time before his opponents are sucking for a win and he's able to step on the gas a little bit more and start taking over and possibly even finding finishes his cardio for a guy of his stature is very impressive and i think at 32 years old he's slowly entering his prime and will likely find himself with a ranking beside his name and start coming up in maybe some co-main event slots if he continues his winning ways his opponent this weekend, Shamil Gadziev, has an 11-0 record, 33 years old, and was able to submit Greg Velasco in his contender series fight a, uh, a couple months back to secure his UFC contract. 
that was a fight where he actually found himself in a peculiar position where we saw Velasco actually get his back, um, but Velasco was unable to really establish a dominant position there, allowing Gadziev to reverse the position, get his own dominant position, and eventually find the rear naked choke to get the victory. Gadziev actually comes from a volleyball background. But as of 2018, he turned his attention to MMA and it's pretty much paying off for him. The guy goes out there and immediately looks to take his opponents to the ground. He doesn't even try to hide much behind his strikes or anything like that. The majority of his fights just see him shooting for a takedown within the first five seconds of the fights taken off. He did use a big punch at the beginning of his fight against Velasco to get the the fight to the ground but uh more often than not he just goes for the takedown i think now that he's in the ufc he's going to try to look to hide some of his takedowns behind his punches especially once he starts feeling resistance and realizing it's not that easy to get fighters to the mat once he does get his opponents to the ground he's able to posture up and find big strikes from that top position to get them out of there eight of his 11 victories have finished uh in the first round uh i believe two of them have finished in the second round and then that one fight that actually went to a decision that he won by split decision his cardio looks a little bit sketchy and i think that's going to end up being the big difference maker here against the guy in budaya who likely give him the most resistance that he has ever faced Budai will be the better striker. He should be able to dictate the pace of this fight. And as long as he stuffs the takedowns and stays out of too much danger in the early going of this fight, he should be able to take over in rounds two and three, really making Gadziev feel that pressure, breaking him in the clinch, and eventually finding a late finish as Gadziev is sucking for wind. Give me Martin Budai here, and I think he gets a third round stoppage over Shamil Gadziev. All right, moving over to the featherweights. Now we got Andre Feely coming in as a minus 175 favorite. He goes up against Lucas Almeida, who comes in at plus 150. We'll start off on the Andre Feely side, who's had a bit of a weird go over the last couple of fights. In his last five, he's won three and won no contest. That one fight that he won was a close fight against Bill Algio that he was able to secure a victory in the third round in a fight that was 1-1 going into the third round. And he was able to use his grappling heavy approach to control Algio and win that fight on the scorecards. Last time around, he came up short against Nathaniel Wood in a fight, which was also 1-1 going into the third round. But it was Wood that was landing the more effective shots in that final round to finally get his hand raised. Now, Philly has been in the UFC for over 10 years and has had the most mediocre record that you could possibly have. We're talking about a guy that has a 10-9-1 and no contest record through 20 fights with the promotion. He never goes on anything longer than a two-fight winning streak, nor has ever had two straight losses back-to-back. I think he is a fighter that will always find himself in that middle of the featherweight division with his uh, his lanky but weird striking style. Uh, he's developing some sort of a, a grappling game as well now where he's looking to take opponents to the ground and try to control them from that top position. But it all seems to be like stylistic based, like whoever his opponent is. I believe that two-fight stretch where he had wins over... Um, Charles Jordan, uh, and there's uh, that Sodiq Yusuf fight. I think he lost the Yusuf fight. But uh, those two fights, he had to combine eight total takedowns. So it really depends on the type of fighter he's fighting. And if he looks to take a grapple-heavy approach, it still depends on what his fight IQ is like. His opponent this weekend, Lucas Almeida, is coming off of a loss where he got completely mauled by Pat Sabatini earlier this year. He was unable to get off much of his own damage. Even though his takedown defense looked good for about the first minute of each round that they competed, he ended up getting finished in the second round as Sabatini was able to snatch up a choke and get the tap there. 
Lucas Almeida normally finds uh, his success when he's able to dictate the pace in terms of the striking realm. He likes to walk his opponents down using combinations, but also the big power in his hands to put his opponents away the way that he did against Michael Trezano for his first UFC win in his UFC debut. He's you know his ground game could obviously use a little bit of work still it's tough to tell what level it's at especially considering in the ufc he's only faced a guy in pat sabatini was you know he's probably in the top 20 to top 10 percent of uh top grapplers in the featherweight division i wonder will feely be able to take this fight to the mat and if he is able to that's probably the path of least resistance and if he's able to establish that top top position that dominant position it's going to be hard for lucas almeida to get his hand raised especially with having to fight off of his back where we've seen him kind of not useless but you know ineffective with much of what he's been looking to do off of his back I will ever so slightly lean the Feely way. I'm not so happy with the chalk in this spot as if Feely decides to go out there and strike with Almeida, that could spell some trouble for him just as it did for Trezano. I think that Feely can be competitive in the striking round, but one minor slip-up could cause him to either get knocked out or knocked down and give up a round there, just as he did against Nathaniel Wood in the first round of their fight. But I'm still going to lean with the overall advantages that Feely has in this fight from his 20-fight UFC experience to the possible grappling edge that he should have in this matchup. I'd be surprised if we see him shoot anything less than three takedowns here, unless he gets an early submission or finish, of course. But I think that we'll see him go out there, land takedowns, really grind out Almeida, and pick up another decision victory, and ultimately avoiding the first-ever losing streak of his UFC career. So give me Feely and Feely by decision. All right, moving over to the flyweights here. Very intriguing fight here between the minus 170 Tugir Ulenbekov. He's going up against the plus 145 Cody Durden. We'll start off on the Ulenbekov side, who still only has four fights in the UFC since joining the promotion, I believe, back in 2020. He has a 3-1 record with the promotion most recently, coming off of a submission victory over Nate Maness, where he was able to snatch up the neck and get that standing guillotine choke finish. Usually, when Ulenbekov has his way with opponents, it looks like him dragging opponents to the ground and grinding them out from that top position. However, I've had some concerns about his ability to control his opponents. He had some issues against Bruno Silva, and he was happy to get his hand raised that night. Even Alan Nascimento, who is a very solid BJJ black belt. And then, obviously, the Tim Elliott fight, which ended up causing the first loss in his UFC career. That was a fight where the first two rounds, he was getting flustered and frustrated by the awkward and unorthodox movement of Tim Elliott, but also Elliott's ability to create scrambles that Ulenbekov was unable to keep him and contain him in. Obviously, Ulenbekov had big success in the third round, but it was already too late for him to pick up a decision victory as Elliott had won the first two rounds without much concern. But it was a big confidence booster for uh, Ulenbekov to get that win over Maness last time around, and I think that he can do the same thing here against Cody Durden. But speaking of Cody Durden, this is a guy that is at an all-time high in terms of confidence. He's 4-0 over his last four fights, obviously uh, rebounding very well after that loss to Mohamed Makayev, who was able to submit him a minute into their fight. But he has shown off some very good improvements over his last several fights, a couple of them that he actually found himself as the underdog. 
We saw him go out there and bite down on his mouthpiece and be more than happy to exchange in the pocket with a lot of his fighters so that he can get the respect with the striking and then eventually change levels on these guys, take them to the ground, and then do his best work from that top position. He is a guy that I believe that if he does get pushed into those later rounds, he could start to suffer from the fact that he's throwing so much power in his shots early and we did see him start to slow down in some of those fights. But luckily for him is... Takedown defense was good enough to keep Jake Hadley off of him for the majority of that fight. And Charles Johnson is a guy that just seems to have these weird spells of not throwing anything or doing anything in some of his fights, allowing Durden to go out there and just control the majority of the fights by getting onto the back of his opponents and controlling them. He's a solid wrestler, and he's improving at a steady rate. But I have some question marks in terms of his ability to deal with the range advantage that Ulenbekov is going to have in this matchup. And also... Ulenbekov's ability to snatch onto a neck in case Durden goes out there and tries to throw, shoot a desperation takedown, something that he's done in a lot of his fights. Jake Hadley nearly caught him in a couple of them, and Durden can say what he wants about, you know, they weren't tight or anything like that. But all you need is a guy like Ulenbekov or Mukhaev to snatch onto your neck before you realize, oh, maybe this is a little bit tighter than it should be, and I'm going to have to either go to sleep or tap out in this spot. That's where I kind of have my concerns about Durden because I've seen him take plenty of desperation shots and I don't know how comfortable he's going to be able to be uh, fighting a guy like Ulenbekov strictly standing when he's going to have to crash the pocket as often as he's going to. So I'm not super happy about the minus 170 on Ulenbekov. That's not a spot that I'm comfortable taking a shot on. What I'm looking at is possibly the Ulenbekov via submission prop. If I can get anything better than plus 300 or even plus 250, I take a little bit of a nibble on it because I think that's the best way for him to win this matchup. Is going to be a Durden mistake. You know, Durden could likely win minutes in this fight by just landing bigger strikes and crashing the pocket over and over again. But I think that there is a mistake that is going to be, uh, that's going to happen. And I think that Ulenbekov will be able to take advantage of that. So uh, the prediction is going to be Ulenbekov. Ulenbekov by submission. Uh, again, not too happy about the minus 170 there. If that line trickles down to maybe minus 130, that's wishful thinking, obviously. That's probably the only time I'll probably take a shot on Ulenbekov here. Um, again, control questionable. This fight seems like one of those spots where he might need a finish to get his hand raised. And I think he ends up getting it. Give me Ulenbekov uh, by submission. All right, moving over to the light heavyweights here. We got Alonzo Menafield coming in as the plus 230 underdog going up against minus 270 Dustin Jacoby. Now we'll start off on the Menafield side who's uh, unbeaten in his last four fights. Obviously he went to a draw with Jimmy Crude earlier this year. They ended up rematching and then he managed to submit Jimmy Crude in the second round of their fight. Now it's clear that Menafield is making improvements and really figuring out the best way to manage his gas tank, uh, especially with the you know powerful and explosive style that he normally showcases. A lot of people, including myself, kind of just categorized him as that you know round one or bust type of fighter, a guy that likes to go out there and just throw big haymakers early and try to put his opponents away. And if he's unable to, he likely starts to slow down and allows his opponents to start taking over. But He's been working with Pat Berry as of late, and it seems like they're doing some solid work with him. Specifically, it seems like he's doing his best work when he's able to push these opponents up against the cage, utilizing his power and his strength in a way to control his opponents and wear on them, force them to slow down, so that in the second round he can start to let go with his hands a little bit more and possibly be more effective as his opponents are starting to slow down as well, leaving, leaving openings for his power to translate and potentially find a knockout of his own. Um, that's impressive. You know, I, I'm 
I, I did not give Menafield much of a chance or, or a shot to make improvements considering the physique that he has and the style that he normally fights with. But at 36 years old, he's starting to make improvements, which is which is wild. Uh, his opponent this weekend is 35-year-old Dustin Jacoby, who managed to snap his two-fight losing streak uh, when he was able to finish Kennedy and Zechuku in the opening minute and a half of his last fight. Now, I do have issues with the fact that he has lost a clear round tree on his record, as I thought that was a wayward decision that should have gone his way. But it was the Mirzakhanov fight that it was clearly a Mirzakhanov fight. Um and decision where Mirzakhanov was able to hurt him uh, numerous times in the first two rounds. And even though Jacoby tried to rally back in the third and winning that round on a couple of scorecards, it was too late for him to actually pick up the decision that night as Mirzakhanov had done enough in the first two rounds. Normally, Jacoby showcases a very solid combination striking game where he utilizes his footwork, stays at distance, and uses his kicks to keep his opponents at bay. Whether it's to the leg, to the body, or to the head, his kicking game is very impressive. And what was even more impressive was his victory over Mihao Oleg Shejuk in a fight where he had a broken foot, but still managed to keep the aggressive Oleg Shejuk at bay by using his hands, his footwork, and his uh, volume style of approach. But I think that Jacoby is still a very dangerous light heavyweight, even though he had a two-fight losing streak a couple fights back. I have question marks about this fight being as wide as it is, though. You know, I think that Jacoby's great. I think he's a good fighter. I think that this is a great stylistic matchup for him to keep Menafield at bay and utilize his movement and his footwork and his precision striking and not chasing knockouts, something that he didn't used to do at all. Like he, even the 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 Daun Yung fight, the Kennedy and Zetsuku knockouts, those just came to him. You, you don't see him loading up on his shots. He's just throwing them out there. And it just so happened that he just catches the perfect timing, perfect moment, perfect uh, placement of his shots and they're putting their opponents away. So as long as he continues to stick with that, you know, more knockouts may end up uh, transpiring for him. But in the spot against Menafield, again, he's the, he's the better technical striker, but I wonder what it's going to look like if Menafield looks to you know push him up against the cage, utilizes uh, power and his strength against Jacoby, just as he's been able to do against his last couple of opponents. I'm still going to go with Jacoby here, though. The minus 270, too wide. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pass on that line. Um... I might take a nibble on Jacoby by decision. Um, you know, as as much as Menafield slows down in his fights, he's still hard to put away. He's very durable. Um, he never really settles uh, to, to get beat on by his opponents. Um, he's always moving. He's always finding ways to stay safe. Uh, but I think that we'll see Jacoby just touch him up from distance. Use the kicks. Use the calf kicks. Slow Menafield down. Use his punches after that. See how that works out. But minus 270, just too wide, for, especially against a fighter as dangerous as Menafield. So uh, I'll go with Jacoby here, and I'll go with Jacoby by decision. All right, moving on to the women's flyweight division. We got Casey O'Neill coming in as a minus 205 favorite. She goes up against the streaking Ariane Lipsky, who finds herself at plus 175. We'll start off on the Casey O'Neill side, who suffered her first professional loss earlier this year when she lost at the hands of Jennifer Maya by decision. Now, that was a fight where we still saw the aggressive nature of Casey O'Neill, especially after the serious ACL surgery and rehab that she had to return to before that or return from before that fight. 
Um, and she, you know, only got outstruck by seven strikes. I know I think she landed like 135 strikes against Jennifer from Maya, but Maya landed about 140. But it was the lateral movement of Jennifer Maya that caused Casey O'Neill a lot of issues. She was unable to land uh, effectively or hard enough, as especially with Jennifer Maya moving as much as she did. And then obviously Jennifer crashing the pocket as often as she did with combination striking, throwing three, four, five shots in a row and uh, seemingly doing way more damage than Casey O'Neill was able to muster up. Now, O'Neill has been a fighter that's been getting a buy on a lot of her aggressiveness and ability to push the pace. She's an aggro fighter that just goes out there and just either tries to take her opponents to the ground and smash them from that top position or just use her continuous forward movement and big strikes to try to earn the respect of her opponents so that she muzzles them and then she's able to just dictate the pace and stay in their face. But it's the lack of technique at times that causes her issues and which is why I think she ended up losing that fight against Jennifer Maya. Because Maya was sticking to the uh, script. She was sticking to her technical striking. And that's what caused more damage on Casey O'Neill than compared to what O'Neill was trying to dish out. And that might end up biting her in the ass here against a Muay Thai specialist like Ariane Lipsky. Now flipping on over to the Lipsky side. If you guys have been following me for a while, you guys know I've been trying to fade over her last couple of fights. But it's clear that she has been making big improvements and the change in her training. You know, she she was Amer uh, at American Top Team for the, uh, I think it was for the Montana De La Rosa fight. Uh, she skipped out or she ended up leaving that uh, fight or that team uh, doing her own thing. But it was before the J.J. Aldrich fight where she found herself teaming up with Amanda Nunes at her private facility um, and, and getting her own training in there. Now with her significant other as her head coach, she's now training out of a gym, uh, a UFC gym down in Florida somewhere. And it seems like they really have it toned in and just tuned into exactly what she needs in terms of her preparation on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. We know she has great striking. You know, we, we saw it on display against J.J. Aldrich where she stung her early and it seemed like that's all she needed to win the rest of the fight. And then even against Melissa Gatto, she's the one pressuring in that fight and she's able to get off on better strikes, um, land the more visible damage, uh, staying in Gatto's face, especially against Gatto who's normally the one staying in her opponent's face. Gatto was the aggressive fighter. Gatto was the one pushing her opponents against the fence, but it was Lipsky who was able to uh, demand the respect and gain the respect of Gatto, which allowed her to control the majority of that fight and then win it on the scorecards. Close fight, but she still ended up getting her hand raised. Now, the fight against Casey O'Neill. This is a very intriguing fight. This the, the odds, in my opinion, are off. This should be closer. This Sure, you want to give Casey O'Neill the favorite tag, go ahead, give her the favorite tag. But Lipsky has an experience advantage. Lipsky has a technical advantage. And Lipsky is growing in confidence on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. And I feel like if she can keep this fight upright, another aspect of her game that she's improved is her takedown defense. If she keeps this fight upright, continues to dig those underhooks, pivot out back into the center of the cage, and then get back to her striking and her combinations, she's going to land the more damaging blows compared to Casey. Casey might be able to get more numbers on her. She might be able to have higher output. But I think the more damaging blows and the more visible damage will be on the side of Casey O'Neill, like where you'll see the damage on her face with Lipsky landing that damage. Um, so at plus 175... I feel like Lipsky's worth a shot here. And again, this is coming from somebody that has adamantly faded Lipsky in the past and have come up unsuccessful. I'm officially on the Lipsky train. And I feel like, again, somebody is still as raw, as untested-ish. You know, I don't want to say that fully. You know, O'Neill, she's faced some decent names, but she's still yet to go through um, constant adversity. She only has one loss on her record. And we see where that loss came from. 
And Lipsky is absolutely capable of providing a similar type of loss. So give me Lipsky and Lipsky by decision. All right, moving over to the men's bantamweight division. We got Cody Garbrandt going up against the returning Brian Kelleher. We got minus 220 on Garbrandt, plus 185 on Kelleher. Starting off on the Cody Garbrandt side, he's had a very rough go of things since losing the title to TJ Dillashaw back in the day and uh, has still yet to find his footing. His last matchup against Trevin Jones was a very pedestrian type of performance, but it's what he needed to get back on the winning track and avoid another three-fight losing streak. We saw him utilize his grappling, something that we don't often see from him. And even though he kind of struggled to establish his dominant position, he just... He did the bare minimum. I think he won or landed 24 significant strikes the entire fight. He utilized a lot of movement. Trevin Jones allowed him to kind of dance that range, and Trevin Jones let the fight slip away from him because Cody Garbrandt was still closing the pocket enough so that he can get off some punches to show the judges that he was still landing more than what Jones is doing. And again, every so often, try getting the fight to the ground um, and just getting that control time. But it's obvious that he still... Um, does not enjoy being hit. Not saying anybody enjoys being hit, but it just seems like his reaction time is, or uh, his reactions to getting hit have tremendously dropped since you know his the knockout losses that he suffered at the hands of T.J. Dillashaw, Pedro Munoz, Kai Car France. Like any one of those shots could start putting him down. So that's the big question mark here. He's 32 years old. You know he's still young enough to 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 try to get back to title contention, but I just feel like he's. He's not sure of himself completely, and that's going to cause him to fight in a very safe way and a way that a fighter that's a little bit more aggressive could potentially get him out of there. And that's possibly what he's fighting here. And Brian Keller, who, who again, is returning from a pretty serious injury where uh, he had to get some sort of spinal surgery, neck surgery, I believe it is. Um, it took him out of his fight that he was scheduled to f- compete on earlier this year. Um, he's fully rehabbed, fully ready to go. And I feel like he, this could be a prime position for him to, you know, a fight that he's coming back from a again a serious injury that that may remind him of how much he actually loved to fight. Um, you know, this guy's clearly somebody that loves to fight. He's thirty eight fights under his belt. He's fought the best of the best. He's on a two fight losing streak against guys like Umar or uh, yeah Umar Usman Umar Usman's the brother in Bellator uh, Umar Nurmagomedov and Mario Bautista. So he's fighting the best of the best. He's never saying no to any of these guys. And now he has a chance of a lifetime to fight a former champion in Cody Garbrandt. And he could possibly, if he just pushes the pace, if he possibly uses his grappling edge that he could potentially have in this fight, because we've seen Boom Kelleher go out there and grind fighters out like he's done against Domingo Polarte as he's done against Kevin Kroom, that's absolutely a possibility for him. Brian Keller cannot just sit back and let Cody Garbrandt do his thing. He needs to crash the pocket. He needs to let his hands go. I think his durability is good enough to deal with anything that Garber might try to throw in in turn. And as long as he just bites down on his mouthpiece and throws back, he might be able to land one of his big boom shots and might even put Garbrandt out. Which is why plus 185 makes me scratch my head. How can you be confident in Cody Garbrandt minus 220 considering the style that we've seen him fight over his last couple fights? We know that he's not no longer going to go back to that cocky striking style that we saw when he had his best performance to date against Dominic Cruz. But we know that he's going to be tentative. We know that he's not going to get be like uh, enjoy being hit. And Brian Kelleher loves to hit. So as long as Boom does not let Cody uh, get away with what he was doing against Trevin Jones, he should be able to crash the pocket. He should be able to land some big shots. And he might even be able to get some wrestling going here and keep Garbrandt on the ground. Maybe land some big shots there and finish him there too. 
Plus 185 is a tremendous number for a guy like Kelleher. The only thing keeping me from this, making it an even bigger play, would be the, the fact that he's coming back from such a severe injury, surgery, rehab, all that stuff. But if even if he gives us 70% of what he used to be, this could be a fight where he pulls off the upset against a former champion. So give me Brian Boom Kelleher. Um, I'm going to take him to win this fight by knockout. All right, moving on to the next fight here. We got Irene Aldana going up against Carol Hosa. Sorry, just get my graphic up here. We got minus 220 on Aldana, plus 185 on Hosa. Starting off on the Aldana side, we saw last time around she had her championship opportunity to go up against Amanda Nunes. I believe that fight was in June, and she came up short. She got swept on the scorecards and thoroughly beat down by one of the greatest women fighters of all time. We saw Nunez use her superior striking and power to hurt Aldana on numerous occasions and then utilize her wrestling in the final two rounds to really put the hurt on Aldana from that top position. Aldana, normally at her frame and stature of 5'9 and 68-inch reach, likes to utilize her range, her striking, combination striking, and her kicks from distance to land a lot of her damage and a lot of her power. But it seems like she does have a little bit of an issue in terms of the clinch and the grappling realm when fighters are uh, very insistent in terms of implementing that type of game plan. We saw Holly Holm obviously come away with the decision victory by grinding on Aldana for the majority of that matchup. And then obviously even Macy Casson in that win for Aldana. Casson was winning the majority of that matchup by taking the fights to the ground and doing good work from on top. Luckily for Aldana, she was able to create that scramble opportunity in the third round that landed that beautiful and probably once-in-a-lifetime heel-to-deliver knockout shot that she won. Um, but still... Big learning lesson from Aldana there as she uh, had a lot of issues in terms of the grappling that her opponent was trying to implement on her. Uh, Carol Hosa, winning and losing over her last five fights, most recently coming off of a decision victory over Yana Santos. Now she's back down at 135 pounds, and I believe she's still a fighter with a tremendous amount of potential considering she's still only 28 years old. She's a fighter that can go out there and get into the triple digits in terms of significant strikes if that's the type of fight that her opponent wants, or she's able to take them to the ground and grind them out from that top position. It was very unfortunate to see the way uh, the lazy approach she took in the Norma Dumont fight, where she allowed the first eight and a half minutes to slip by, allowing Dumont to just cage push her the entire time. When she finally started to fight, she was able to dig the underhooks, get back out into distance, and get off on her own damage, but unfortunately, it was too little too late by that moment in time. She kind of showcased that she learned from that lesson as Yana Santos won the majority of that first round with the cage push. But we eventually saw, her, saw Hosa snap to get back into range, get her own clinch in, and work off. And even some takedowns where she was able to get off on some good damage from on top. She's a fighter that can outstrike her opponents if that's what she needs. She's also a fighter that can outgrapple her opponents if that's what she needs. And I think that's the latter that she's going to need here against a fighter like Irene Aldana. Aldana might have the technical striking advantage here, but if Hosa is willing to bite down on the mouthpiece, close the distance, and get this into the clinch run and the grappling realm, she absolutely gives herself a chance to win this matchup. And she's not that far behind in terms of striking. Like she's, She will be very competitive in the striking realm in this fight, but she just she needs to take initiative she needs to go out there and set the pace and dictate the pace of this matchup especially with her ability to go out there and engage in the clinch and the grappling and possibly do some good work from that top position so give me the youngster here the 28 year old at least relative to the 35 year old Irene Adala uh, as I think Hosa can go out there and put together a better MMA package here and win this fight on the scorecards 
So give me Carol Hosa by decision, pulling off the upset as a plus 185 underdog. Moving over to the next matchup here, we got Featherweights throwing down as we got Josh Emmett coming in as the underdog, a plus 200 underdog against Thug Nasty Bryce Mitchell coming in at minus 235. Now we got Josh Emmett obviously coming off of that loss to Ilya Tapuria, a five-round beat down by the current title challenger Tuporia who fights Alexander Volkanovsky in February uh Josh Emmett uh, was unable to get off on any of his own damage you know he's a guy that never was a great technical striker but was still a guy that could go out there and put big power on his opponents with the explosive type of strikes that he likes to bring to the table but it seemed the fundamentals and the technical aspects of Tuporia's striking game was too much for Emmett to overcome Emmett also has a bit of a wrestling style that he can implement but it's not often that you see him go out there and try to take that takedown heavy approach. We actually saw Taporia be the one to land the majority of takedowns in their matchup. Um, Emmett, 38 years old, clearly starting to slow down, uh, taking a significant amount of damage over his last couple of fights. Uh, very tough for him, or at least tough to see him take that type of uh, damage. Um, he was originally supposed to fight Giga Chikaze. Chikaze pulls out uh, and in steps Mr. Bryce Mitchell. Now, Bryce was able to bounce back from his first professional loss as he also lost to Ilya Taporia, but uh, he was able to get the decision victory over Dan Ige earlier this year in a fight where he was able to implement his smothering, grappling-heavy approach that has made him so successful to date. And it's not even like just traditional takedowns that are getting him in these positions. He's able to get his opponents into the clinch and then eventually work them to the ground just with a smother and a grind that some fighters are unable to keep up with. We know in the striking realm that Bryce doesn't really have much to offer. He just stays active enough to eventually close that distance and get his opponents to the ground. And I think he's going to be able to do that here against Josh Emmett. For the most part, it seems like Bryce Mitchell has some solid durability. I, you know, may not, he may not be able to take a clean shot straight from Josh Emmett here, but if he can avoid the brunt of the shots from Emmett and the explosions, he should be able to counter those explosions with the level change, getting this fight to the ground, or at least initiating the clinch. And from there, bullying Josh Emmett to the mat and eventually wrapping up some sort of submission or even just grinding this fight out over 15 minutes. I'm not a big thug nasty guy given how um, uh, restricted he is in the striking realm, but Josh Emmett doesn't strike me as anything that's going to cause him too much issues. Obviously, you can hedge with Emmett via knockout if you have those concerns. But I think for the most part, I think Mitchell des- decided to accept this fight on short notice because he saw the openings that he could implement to try to get his hand raised here. So give me Bryce Mitchell and Bryce Mitchell by decision. All right, moving over to some of the more funner fights that are on the docket here. We got a welterweight matchup between veteran Vicente Luque coming off a main event victory over Rafael Dos Anjos earlier this year. Uh, going up against uh, Ian Machado Gary, who seems to be you know one of the more hated dudes uh, in the MMA uh, universe right now. We'll start off on the Luque side here, who comes in as a plus 300 underdog. Very wild to see a fighter of his caliber that big of an underdog, especially after having such a complete performance like he did over Rafael Dos Anjos uh, earlier this year. That was on the back end of a two-fight losing streak where he had lost to Bilal Muhammad and then obviously knocked out by Jeff Neal. There are a lot of concerns about his health 
And uh, the fact that he had to get a, some sort of a, uh, an approval, uh, an exemption due to a brain bleed he had at the hands of Jeff Neal. Uh, but it seemed like Luke was fully in there. He was taking big shots from Dos Santos or Dos Santos. Could you imagine? Uh, Junior Dos Santos landing big shots on Luque. Jeez. Um, no, but he was taking big shots from Dos Santos uh, and still in there, you know, forcing his style. Uh, utilizing his uh, hard-nosed Muay Thai striking style, getting into the clinch, dragging the fight to the ground, and doing big damage from on top. He also has a very slick jujitsu game as well, where he can show off his BJJ black belt, slapping on chokes onto his opponents, and trying to get them out of there like he did against Tyron Woodley, and like he did against Michael Chiesa. Uh, very fun fighter, only 32 years old. You know, he has a lot of miles on his body for a guy that has 32 uh, professional fights on his record. Uh, but showcasing his fight against Los Angeles that he still has it. His opponent this weekend, Ian Machado, Gary, 14-0, coming off the biggest win of his uh, career last time around where he just absolutely demolished Neil Magny over 15 minutes. I believe the majority of the scorecards were 30-24s across the board, uh, hurting Magny seemingly with every single shot that he threw. A lot of big leg kicks that seemed to immobilize or um, hurt uh, uh, Magni uh, allowing Gary to kind of just have fun uh, for the rest of the fight with his uh, speed, his precision, and his striking uh, advantage that he had in that matchup. Now, in this matchup against uh, Vicente Luque, you know, you're talking about the, the toughest fight of Gary's career. You're talking about um, a, a guy that will possibly push Gary more than he's ever been pushed. You know, in the UFC, the only adversity that we've seen Gary face is when he got hurt very badly by Kanan Song in that first round, but he showcased the ability to battle back from adversity, winning in the second and third rounds, uh, and, and then getting that, you know, knockout in the last minute of that uh, of that final round. Um, him at his best is him using his footwork, his range management, and his straight shots down the pipe to keep his opponents at bay. You know, in this matchup, he actually won't have uh, the reach advantage. Vicente Luque will have a two-inch reach advantage, but Gary will still have a four-inch height advantage. And I think a lot of that will be exaggerated when we see him using his front kicks up the middle to try to keep Luque at bay. Um, I'm not on board with Gary at minus 375. I think that line's just a little bit wild, especially against a guy as dangerous as Vicente Luque. But I think the big difference here is going to be the uh, the speed. Um, the precision, the the straight shots down the pipe from Gary. I think that's going to hurt Luke over and over again. I don't know if it transpires uh, in a finish. Um, I, I think I am going to lean with the with the finish, though. I think it's going to be Gary um, touching up Luke, round and a half, two rounds, um, both guys have very solid gas tanks, solid cardio. So I expect uh, Luke to be fighting the entire time, trying to make it a, a rough night for Gary. And he might succeed in doing so, which is why I don't like the minus 375 at all. But um, I think we'll see Gary land a big shot in the final round of this fight and put Luke away after you know accumulating as much damage as he already has on the veteran. So uh, give me Gary here, but Gary inside the distance more than anything. Uh, Luke is very live here. So don't just you know parlay Gary willy-nilly here because Luke is absolutely capable of putting, his, uh, putting him away too. But I think that Gary's just, again, speed advantage, athleticism advantage, uh, his range. It's just going to be too much for Luke in the spot. And I think that will allow him to go out there and get the finish third round. All right, moving over to uh, one of the more sadder matchups <laughs> that we have on the card. 
We got Tony Ferguson coming in as a plus 225 underdog. He takes on Patty the Batty Pimblet, who comes in at minus 285. Now, Tony Ferguson had a tremendous 12-fight winning streak, which still kind of only got him an interim title shot. Um, one of the, the best runs we've ever seen at Lightweight. One of the funnest runs and most entertaining runs we've ever seen, considering the amount of chaos that Tony Ferguson normally instills in his matchups. But... Since getting finished by Justin Gaethje in the first matchup back for our first UFC event back from the pandemic, uh, Ferguson has known nothing but losses and red. Um, I believe it is now seven straight losses. It might be six straight losses, but he it's just not been looking good. He's been getting finished. He got finished in four of those six losses. Um, yeah, it's just he's not reacting well to shots. Um you know, he's losing to guys that he should beat in certain spots. He's having some bright moments, though. There are a couple of scorecards where he has won some rounds against some guys. Uh, There's that big, you know, uh, stun and 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 hurting of uh, Michael Chandler that he had in the first round of the matchup until Chandler was able to land that beautiful front kick uh, in the second round to get him out of there. But 39 years old, the amount of damage he sustained... You know, durability used to be a big thing in uh, Tony Ferguson that people used to look up to and kind of credit him for, but that seems to be going out the window now as well. It's tough. It's very hard. And it's clear what the UFC is trying to do here by putting Patty up against him, knowing that Tony Ferguson is a name. He's still a bit of a draw. And if Patty's able to add his name to his record, he's probably going to get a little bit more respect, but I think it's just going to work counterintuitively for them. Um Again, just finishing off with Ferguson, chaotic, unorthodox striking approach, um, uh, slick jujitsu that probably is not as effective as it is uh, as it was back in the day, um, and I think just leaning on that too much has kind of led to him losing some of the fights that he's lost, like the Charles Oliveira and Benio Darius fights. Now he's going up against Patty, twenty and three in terms of his record, uh, undefeated in the UFC finishing three of his four wins. Uh, coming off that controversial decision victory over Jared Gordon uh, in December of last year, in the last year-end event, um, that was a fight where, uh, you know, myself included, thought a lot of people, um, sorry, a lot of people thought Jared Gordon won that fight. And, you know, when you look at MMA decisions and you see the overwhelming support and uh, um, scorecards in Gordon's favor, um, it's it makes you think that, Maybe the UFC is up to something with Patty and trying to get the commission to favor him or something like that. It is what it is. Um, but this is a fight that's supposed to be tailor-made for Patty to go out there and get the dub. But at minus 285, you can't help but think that there's going to be some sort of fuckery going on that uh, Ferguson might be able to pull something off. Um, you know, I, it would have to be a finish more than anything. Maybe it hurts Patty and locks up a submission of some sort. But I, I think Patty just walks him down lands some big shots, maybe goes for a takedown, uh, evades the submissions of Ferguson, and just establishes that top position and grinds this fight out. But I, again, minus 285, it's just too much for me to to be fully entrusting of Patty to get the job done here. I'm not picking Ferguson to win this fight. Don't get me wrong. I'm still going with Patty. I think Patty uh, likely, I think I went with, yeah, I think he grinds this fight out. Very low confidence there. But I think that this is a fight that he'll probably take the Charles Oliveira approach, the Benio Darius approach, and just look to nullify Tony Ferguson by taking him to the ground and grinding him out from that position. It's going to be Pimblet, Pimblet by decision, but just, I might not even watch this fight, honestly. I used to be such a big fan of Tony Ferguson to see him be put in a position against Paddy Pimblet like this. I don't know. Makes me scratch my head. All right. 
Moving on to the next matchup here, another kind of passing of the torch fight going down in the welterweight division. We got minus 650 on Mr. Shavkat Rachmanov. He goes up against Wonder Boy Stephen Thompson, who comes in at plus 475. Now, we'll start off with the 17-0 Shavkat Rachmanov, who nearly had his finishing streak uh, uh, finished. <laughs> Uh, in the Jeff Neal fight, uh, a fight that he pretty much won the majority of that matchup. But uh, if he had won that fight by decision, that would have been his first fight in 17 fights that he had won on the scorecards, any fight that had gone to the scorecards. But luckily for him, he was able to get a finish in the last minute of that fight, getting that, uh, I believe it was a standing rear naked choke uh, over Jeff Neal, who was very battered and bruised throughout the majority of that matchup. Now, Rachmanov is a guy that normally looks to take his opponents to the ground and smash them from that top position, uh, using his elbows to open up passing opportunities and then eventually either sinking in chokes or just posturing up and getting TKO finishes. He's strong. He's gangly. He's he has that gangly strength that makes it hard for opponents to kind of deal with him in the clinch when he when he's able to trip them or toss them or even just take that traditional takedown approach that he normally takes. Um, but he's very strong. Once he gets that top position, and it's usually pretty soon after that he's able to get their opponents out of there. His opponent this weekend, Wonderboy Thompson, is at the 40-year-old uh, state of his career where you know he got that big win over Kevin Holland last time around, uh, last December. But that was the fight where Kevin Holland showcased the worst fight IQ possible, fighting Ke- uh, Stephen Thompson in a Stephen Thompson type of fight. And then we saw Kevin Holland try to grapple uh later on in the fight but it was already too late he was already too gassed uh thompson was already way ahead by that point and then obviously we saw the fight get stopped i think it was due to uh kevin holland i think it was his eye um, maybe his hand i don't recall what it was but it was some sort of like tko corner stoppage now thompson was actually supposed to fight michelle pereira earlier this year and pereira missed weight uh and thompson refused to accept the fight after that and it seemed to anger the ufc brass where they put him on blast they you know they said uh we can't we wanted him to take the fight uh it was only a couple pounds uh thompson reiterating that you know the the loss that he took at the hands of darren till uh darren till missed weight and he feels that might have played into the fact that he ended up losing that very very close fight and if it's a matter of inches at this state of his career he still has his eyes on the fact that he wants to go out there and try to fight for a title so another loss here could either end his career or you know really put him even further back so I, I kind of get it from the Thompson's perspective, but they put him on blast and they're like, okay, we want him up against Rachmanov and Wonderboy being the company guy that he is outside of the, you know, avoiding the fight with Michelle Pereira after Pereira miss weight. He accepts Rachmanov. Stylistically, the worst matchup that you could possibly give him. Horrible, horrible, horrible matchup. You know, we saw Gilbert Burns go out there, grind out Thompson. We saw Bilal Muhammad go out there, grind out Thompson. Shavkat Rachmanov, Probably more dangerous than those guys when he's able to get them to the ground. And I think that we'll see Rachmanov get him to the ground pretty easily here. Get that dominant position. And I think he'll be able to posture up for a TKO or a submission. Um, I think Rachmanov inside the distance. I think he can parlay Rachmanov. You're not minus 650. This is a horrible stylistic matchup for Stephen Thompson. You know, Thompson's a guy that I love. Thompson's a guy that I've uh, picked in the past to still go out there and get some upset victories. And he's come through in some of those matchups. But this is not a fight that he's going to be able to do. So I don't even want to nibble at minus 475. Give me Rachmanov. Rachmanov inside the distance. And I think he gets it done pretty easily. All right. Moving over to the first championship fight that we have of the evening. Goes down in the flyweight division. Where we got newly minted champion 
Alexandre Pantoja coming in as a minus 190 favorite. He goes up against Brandon Royval, who comes in at plus 160. Now, these two obviously met back in August of 2021, a fight that I was very happy to uh, be live in attendance for at the Apex. Uh, it was a fun fight. Um, a big Roy Val fight. I predicted Roy Val that night, and uh, we saw the big differences that night. We saw the technical advantages and the discipline of Pantoja pay off for him as he was able to get the back of Roy Val numerous times and eventually get the submission in the second round, putting him away and securing that victory that night. But let's talk a little bit more about Pantoja and the four-fight winning streak that he's on right now. After beating Roy Val, he went out there and submitted Alex Perez, showing him no respect whatsoever, walking through him and eventually opening up that submission opportunity and taking it on home with him. That set him up for that title fight that he had against Brandon Moreno earlier this year, back in July, where it was a closely contested fight. But it was Pantoja who was able to win rounds one, three, and five, I believe on two judges' scorecards, um, and that allowed him to pick up the win and the title. That's the second time he's defeated Moreno, and he actually went into that matchup as a sizable underdog, as a lot of people thought that Moreno made enough improvements since the last fight that he should have been able to overcome the monster of his past. But Pantoja showcases, even at 33 years old, he's very tough to deal with. He's very strong with his striking. He has a lot of uh, power in his combinations, um, very tough to hit cleanly and hurt badly. Moreno had a couple good strikes throughout their matchup. But it's really when he's able to get the control time on the ground or even on the back of Moreno like he did in the final round of their fight that he's difficult to deal with. He's very slick with his jiu-jitsu and he's very crushing with that top pressure and very smothering once he gets a dominant position. Very tough to get out of those spots. Uh, still one of the best flyweights and I'm glad he finally has a championship to showcase for it. His opponent this week in Brandon Roy Val is probably one of my favorite flyweights on the roster just because of how chaotic his fights are. He goes out there and he puts it all on the line every single time. A lot of his strikes and his even grappling maneuvers lack some technical aspects, but given his just jittery approach to fighting, you know, he just he never creates a pattern. He's like a he, he's kind of like Tim Elliott in an aspect that he's just so chaotic and just tries to create that chaos so that he can thrive within it and break his opponents. Nothing was clearer when he was able to do that against Kai Kara France in a fight where he ended up getting hurt pretty badly and then came back with a spinning back elbow to hurt Kai Kara France even, bad, or even worse and then eventually get the finish himself and get his hand raised. That's what Brandon Royval brings to the table. He's just so unpredictable, uh, so chaotic that opponents just aren't used to his his style, uh, which kind of makes them have a minor slip up that Royval is able to take advantage of. Even in the Matthias Nicolau fight, you know, we saw him throw that wayward knee, land cleanly on Nicolau, hurt Nicolau, and then he was able to post. Um, yeah, posture up, find some big round and pound and get him out of there. That secured his third straight victory and secured him a shot at avenging his loss to Alexander Pandu and Pantoja that he had in August of 2021. This is a fun fight. No matter how you chop it up, this will be a very entertaining fight. Uh, the under is set at two and a half. I think that's going to be my favorite uh, spot in this matchup. I think no matter who ends up winning, it probably comes by finish within the first 12 and a half minutes. But I think it's going to be the champion reigning supreme once again. And it hurts me. It hurts me to say that. Because Roy Val is one of my favorite, if not my favorite fighter on the roster because of his chaotic and entertaining style. But I think that only works against guys that don't know how to utilize their discipline and technique to overcome that. And I think we saw that from Pantoja in their first meeting. 
yeah, Roy Val was, you know, rolling and flipping and doing all these things, but Pantoja always found a way to secure the back position and control him from that position and eventually sink in that rear naked choke and get the win. And I think we could see this fight play out similarly. It doesn't help that Roy Val has doggone horrible takedown defense. And I think that Pantoja at a certain point will be able to find this fight on the ground. And I think his jiu-jitsu is good enough to stay out of any of the wacky unorthodox submissions that Roy Val is going to be throwing. And I think if Roy Val looks to strike off of his back and throw elbows the way he has in the past, that's just going to open up passing opportunities for Pantoja to take so that he can snatch up the neck, snatch up an arm, snatch up a limb, whatever it might be. But I think Pantoja's discipline, technique, and just overall masterful uh, approach to his jiu-jitsu is going to be too much to ro- for Roy Val here, and that will allow Pantoja to get his hand raised. Roy Val, again, is possible to land some crazy freaking flying knee, uh, a jump knee, whatever it might be. It's something crazy that might catch Pantoja off guard. It's absolutely possible. That's why these odds are not minus 400 for Pantoja, because Roy Val is capable of creating chaos and pulling off the upset but i'm going to go with the tried and true here i'm going to go with the guy that we can you know kind of rely on to stick to the the meat and potatoes to stick to the to the discipline and technique and i'm going to take pantoja and i think he wins this fight by submission and i think it happens under that two and a half round mark all right welterweights on tap here we got a solid championship matchup here as we got minus 160 on leon edwards as he takes on the bad boy mr colby chaos covington who comes in at plus 140 now we'll start off on the edwards side who's coming off of back-to-back victories over kamaru usman now let's talk about those victories over Usman a little bit more. If you guys remember the first Usman fight, he won that first round, but then got controlled and dominated over the next two rounds. But luckily for him, he had it in him to muster up that beautiful head kick heard around the world to put Kamar Usman's lights out in the final round of that matchup to secure the title, win the fight, and get his hand raised. Follow that up with another fight against Kamar Usman in a fight where a lot of people thought that Usman might have been pushed to come back sooner than he should have. And Edwards was getting away with a lot of stuff in that fight. Some uh, fence grabbing, some um, glove grabbing. (laughs) Uh, He did get a point taken away for one of the cage grabs that he had. But, you know, you take that position away from Usman just to take the point away. And now Usman's unable to get that uh, position back. He still went on to win that round, I believe, on two judges' scorecards. And I personally think that fight probably should have been scored a draw. I thought Usman did enough to win the second round. I thought he won third round 10-8 because of the point deduction. And I thought uh, Edwards won the rest of the rounds. But again, it all came down to one adjustment that Edwards made. And that was the wrist control whenever Usman went in for a takedown. We saw Edwards look to grab the wrist. Sometimes maybe grabbing the glove. But some more often not grabbing the wrist. Making sure that Usman was unable to clasp his hands behind him. So that he can secure those takedowns just as he did in the first fight. But Edwards stuffed the takedowns got back out onto distance, used his kicks a lot, um, hurt Usman a couple times, utilized his hands after that, but mostly relied on his kicks to hurt Usman's legs. We know Usman has issues with his knees, all that stuff. So good one for Edwards. Deserving of being a champion. 21-3 and record, great. Good for him. Great striking. Good grappling of his own when he has the uh, the grappling advantage as we saw him do against uh, Rafael Dos Anjos, uh, against Nate Diaz. He's been able to do it in the past. I was going up against a kind of a, a kind of a different version of Kamar Usman and Colby Covington. Now, when Usman had his reign going, I, I I would always, you know, hype up Covington and Usman, two of the best fighters in the UFC, regardless of division, because of their ability to implement their wrestling, 
but also the ability to push the pace and uh, weaponize their cardio because their gas tank was probably the best part of their games. They're able to put pressure on their opponents and just keep coming at them, keep them in uncomfortable positions. Uh, Usman was more reliant on landing takedowns and hurting his opponents from that top position, whereas Kobe was okay to either land takedowns, do his work from that top position, but fine with also just throwing shots out there you know, I think there was a fight where he had like 200 significant strikes landed. Like he's fine to just go out there and and land output and stay busy enough from distance. Um, and then mixing in takedowns after that. But it wasn't, uh, you know, a, um, a do or die thing for him if he didn't secure the takedowns because he was fine to go out there and just strike. You know, in ways he almost has a a Marab Davalishvili type of style. I'd say Marab is the best at what he does, but Kobe kind of has that style as well too. Um. And I think that that's what makes him live in this matchup. I think that's what's going to keep Leon Edwards on the defensive for the majority of this matchup. So I don't think Colby necessarily needs to land takedowns to win this fight. Just throw volume out there. You know, Edwards is a guy who's kind of accepted letting rounds get away from him. And, you know, Usman's not as confident in his striking especially against a guy like Edwards who had the technical advantage there, compared to Covington, who's going to be a guy that just doesn't care about the technique. He's just going to continue to throw. As long as he doesn't get hurt badly, as long as he doesn't get wobbled over and over again or get knocked out, this is a fight that he can win way more minutes than Edwards and likely pull away with this fight on the scorecards and probably win a decision. I don't like the fact that he's been out for over a year and a half now. That's obviously working against him, but it seems to be a guy that has constantly still been staying in the gym, staying in shape and ready to take this opportunity whenever it presented itself. He's 35 years old now, but I still think he's still at an age where he can give us peak performances. And this is a good matchup for him to go out there and showcase that. So getting Covington at a underdog line is a no-brainer shot, especially with how these guys match up with one another. So I'm going to take Kobe Covington here. I'm going to take him to pull off the upset. I think his style, volume-based approach, his activity level, his cardio, consistent movement, always giving Edwards different looks is going to cause Edwards some frustration, especially when Edwards is unable to land cleanly, especially if Edwards is not able to hurt him or cause significant damage. Kobe should be able to go out there and control the majority of this fight. I always said Kobe Covington would be the champion of the welterweight division had it not been for Kamaru Usman. Kamaru had the perfect anti-wrestling and power in his hands to cause Kobe some issues. But Kobe is still a very difficult matchup for a lot of fighters out there. So give me Kobe Covington in this fight. I think he wins this fight by decision, overwhelms Leon Edwards, and finally earns that undisputed UFC welterweight title. Whether that lines up a rematch with him and Kamaru Usman, as Kamaru is already 2-0 over, over him, who knows? But I think this weekend... We see Chaos finally get his undisputed title that he's been trying to get for years now. Kobe Covington, by decision. And there you guys go. Breakdowns on all 14 fights. I felt like I w- went a little long on some of these matchups, but it's the last event of the year. Let your boy do his thing. Let your boy talk and just try to unveil and uncover as much information as I can from all the studying that I did for a lot of these matchups. I appreciate all the love again. Like I said at the top of the show, I would not be doing this still if it wasn't for you guys tuning in on a weekly basis, whether it's for the Logcast or all the other segments that I dropped, whether it's you guys going out there and signing up for the MMA Fight Archive to do your own research and utilize that great uh, service or even subscribing to the Patreon and seeing my written breakdowns and all the other great content that I drop on the Lock of the Night Patreon. Um, I, I really appreciate you guys. Honestly, it 
it means the most. Thank you guys. Um, good luck on all your action this week. Uh, this weekend, obviously. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow for the top three lock of the night candidates. Wednesday for the top three dog of the night candidates. Thursday for the quick picks. Friday for the Lockheed Trinity slash Lockheed Two-Step and the three best prop bets. And uh, maybe Sunday, possibly Sunday for a recap video. If that's what you guys want, let me know. Drop again in the comment section. Drop below whether you want um, what kind of new content you'd like to see in uh, 2024. And if you guys would be on board with a you know an immediate recap slash reaction uh, video talking about the event that just wrapped up. You know either right after the event wrapped up or at least the Sunday afternoon afterwards. Let me know what you guys think. Love you guys. Appreciate you guys. Peace. Last thing. Bah.